The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales. Episode 32, A Bucket of Red Herrings. since the pandemic had become a fact of life and he had joined the weekly storytelling group, Lucas reflected. There, he had discovered the stuff of all his nightmares, a good friend, and he still didn't know how to think of Isabel. He only knew that he did, pretty much all the time. It was his turn next and he was down in the app's archives researching an idea. From Isabel's story, he had the image of a fish that was at once wise, wiser than the mortals around it at any rate, and the keeper of a great secret or treasure. He'd found an Irish tale where a salmon instructed a hero to use its bones to create a ladder down into a well in order to retrieve a ring of immense power, but to make sure no bones, however small, were missing, else the fish would not regenerate into a whole being again. That was a little like life, Lucas thought. You had to be sure to gather up all the bits of yourself when fate walked all over you, otherwise you would cease to be as whole as, or as strong as you once were. So far, despite the many hardships and displacements he had experienced in life, he had always kept himself together. But between the precarious nature of his daily life, living in the back of his van and being without papers, prospects, physically close friends or kin, and the fantastical nature of his virtual life, Lucas wasn't sure how long he'd be able to keep himself together. But for the sake of his new friends, he'd keep trying. Lucas was scanning the archive shelves, seeing books representing the stories he knew materializing within reach. He also saw a box. Bridge the space between Afanasyev and Pushkin, and you will find your way, the inscription read. Lucas looked up and saw Moot watching him thoughtfully. He quickly moved to replace the box on the shelf, which suddenly responded like a turned magnet, repelling the little coffer so that Lucas couldn't set it down again. The task is yours, Teller, as are the contents, Moot said. Lucas opened the box. Inside swam a tiny golden pike in water spanned by a crystal bridge. Lucas knew instantly what two stories the scene in the box referenced. What he couldn't quite figure out was how to reconcile them. But then, hadn't Isabel done exactly that with her twin stories of St. Mungo and the Fish and the Beggar King? All she'd needed was the devil to make it work, Lucas shivered. How did you get this box? he asked. In the witch's first story, The Dying Miser's Loot, his boxes of treasure with the impossible locks washed up everywhere in this story world, including here. But... This box was unlocked, Lucas questioned. 
I find very few things impossible, Moot said. Why the crystal bridge and not the palace? Lucas queried. You only need a way over the abyss, Moot answered. What you build on its banks is up to you. Well, Lucas thought, looking at the tiny swimming pike, the two stories he knew about magic fish featured, on the one hand, a lazy simpleton who always seemed to land on his feet, and on the other, an old peasant whose oppressive wife wasn't long satisfied with any amount of good fortune. Maybe his tale would be somewhere between the two. That evening, as his little audience gathered, Lucas described everyone as seated on a bridge, looking down into swirling water made up of words from languages all over the world, in every alphabet that had ever been used. Occasionally, a word or phrase would rise to the surface and expand and pop into ever-diminishing concentric rings. Some collections of words looked like swimming fish, some like mermaids, sea monsters or other amazing creatures, real and imagined, including Rosalki. Lucas, Isabel asked in the private channel, we thought you were nervous around water, afraid of drowning. I was, but people change, he responded with a winking face. Given what we may be facing in the next while, drowning seems much less frightening. Welcome, friends, Lucas began. Many of you know of stories where, in order to gain the princess's hand or save his own life, the hero has to build a beautiful palace or a garden on an island spanned by an impossibly beautiful and impossibly engineered bridge. Sometimes stories that seem thematically close present us with a need to build such a bridge. Alexander Afanasyev collected many stories, Two in particular deal with fish and have become quite well known. The first is sometimes known as Amelia the Simpleton, or at the Pike's behest, and the other we generally call the Golden Fish. This story tells of an old man who goes out fishing and catches a beautiful golden fish. The fish can talk and begs not to be eaten. In exchange for sparing its life, the fish promises to give good fortune to the old man. When his wife hears that he caught a fish but threw it back, she demands that he return to it and ask for greater and greater social and material favor, from bread to palaces, even though in the end she wants greater and greater riches and honors only for herself, finally demanding that the fish give her domain over all the creatures of the sea as empress, whereupon the old man returns from his last audience with the fish to find his wife sitting in their old tumble-down hut, surrounded by the squalor they had known all their lives. Pushkin wrote a version of the latter story in verse, and in many Russian story collections, you are likely to find both tales. Perhaps in the same way general fairy tale collections in the West for children, in English, are likely to include tales from Grimm's, Perrault, Anderson, and many others. These stories have been swimming side by side in my mind for some time, and tonight I will try and put them together. Now, there was once a fairly prosperous peasant who had three sons. Their names were Fyodor, Dmitri, and Emilia. Emilia was the best of them, easygoing, generous, and open-hearted, if a little distracted. 
His brothers took him for a fool because he seemed slow. In truth, in the time it took for their minds to follow one course of action, Emilia's brain had followed the outcomes of three directions and already doubled back to his decision. By and by, the old peasant died, leaving the three brothers the farm with all its lands and buildings and a hundred rubles each. After a time, itching to make their small fortunes yield more, the brothers said to Emilia, we are going into town to buy and trade. We want to add your money to ours so that we have more capital. If you let us do this, then in addition to your share of any successful ventures, we will bring you some red leather boots, a long red shirt, and a fine red hat. You will stay here with your sisters-in-law and help out if they ask. What do you say? Emilia agreed, thinking of how fine he would look in his new clothes. One day, he was asked to go fetch water. It was a bitterly cold day, but Amelia's old boots were full of holes. He wrapped rags around his feet and set out with two pails and an axe. He chopped a hole in the ice of the little stream near the house and scooped up two pails of water. A pike swam to the surface and Amelia tried to catch it. He was pretty quick for a supposedly slow-witted fool and soon the pike was pleading for its life. Don't kill me. I'll give you whatever you want. Just say, by the will of the pike, do as I like, and it shall be done. You could command your buckets to carry themselves off home ahead of you. Why would I do that? Amelia asked. The water will surely spill out without me there to watch it, and the buckets might have no sense of direction and get lost. Fair point, agreed the pike. Say, do you want those old boots? I have no other, and I'll soon lose my feet to frostbite if I try to go home barefoot. The holes would be fun for my little ones to swim through. Leave me your old boots, and I'll give you new ones. Suddenly, a pair of new red leather boots appeared at the edge of the hole in the ice. If you stroke the grain downwards, you can turn them gray, so your sisters-in-law don't get suspicious. Emilia put the new boots on and dropped his old ones into the water. The pike had something in its mouth, which it carefully laid at the edge of the ice hole. It was a small silver bucket with a cover on a fine chain long enough for Emilia to wear around his neck. Inside was a fragment of the red leather his boots were made of. Emilia put it on and thanked the pike. If you are ever in a bind, fill the little bucket with water, the pike instructed. Emilia carried the water home, careful to turn his new boots gray on the step before he went in. Despite his meeting with the magical pike, he wasn't gone long, and Emilia's sisters-in-law were secretly pleased, though they were careful not to tell him that. A few days later, they asked him to go and chop some firewood. He put on his new boots, his old threadbare quilted shirt, and his old hat. Taking up his axe, he went out. The closest stand of trees were near where Emilia had drawn water. He was about to start chopping when he heard a voice calling. Hey there, how are you getting on? How are the boots? Emilia walked over to the ice hole and chatted to the pike. You could command the axe to chop the wood and load it onto your little sledge and send it home for you, the pike suggested. 
By itself would make the villagers think they were seeing ghosts, Amelia refused politely. And I don't want to squander your fine gift. The pike was pleased. Say, are you very attached to that old hat? No, my brothers say they'll bring me back a new one, but somehow I doubt it. Why? Amelia asked. It would make a lovely net for my family to catch and store food in. I'll give you a new one. What color? Red, like my boots. Done, but turn it inside out before you get home so that no one remarks how fine it is. There will be a stray twist of wool at the bottom. Put that in your little bucket, the pike advised. Amelia did as he was told. The hat fitted perfectly, and Amelia looked at his reflection in the icy water. He bid farewell to the pike and shouldered the traces of the little sledge and trudged home. All in all, he wasn't gone long when his sisters-in-law saw how much wood he brought home in such a short time, and so they soon devised a plan to make themselves some extra money at Amelia's expense. They hid most of the firewood so that it looked like the supply had diminished quickly. Then they asked Amelia to take the biggest sledge and two horses and chop as many cords of wood as it was hold. He'd get them home and then they'd sell the firewood in bundles for a tidy profit, since none trusted their absent husband's business acumen. Amelia went out again, driving the much bigger sledge. He was beginning to feel very put upon by his relations. He met the pike again. You could fit half this copse on that sledge. I'll be careful just to thin the trees, don't worry, Amelia promised. Say, the pike said, are you really fond of that quilted shirt? No, but it's all I have, responded Amelia. Give it to me and I'll give you a nice new red one. Fish have no need of shirts, Amelia protested. We can drag it under the overhanging tree on the far bank. In summer, my family likes to rest and play among the submerged roots, but their activities and fun are easy for birds to see from the air. If we use the shirt as a canopy, we can enjoy ourselves in peace. A fine red quilted caftan appeared at the edge of the ice hole. Amelia put it on and dropped his old one into the water. Be careful to pluck the stray thread near the collar and put it in your little silver bucket, the fish admonished. And this time, bid the full sledge to return home on its own and you go seek your fortune. People will talk. Let them. Amelia followed the pike's advice and realized he didn't have to go home either. So he struck out into the wild, white, snowy world to seek his fortune. By and by, he grew tired and hungry, so he filled the little silver bucket with snow, which melted quickly into water as he wore it under his clothes. Suddenly, the bucket seemed to grow very heavy, and Amelia had to take it off and put it down. It was then a full-size bucket with three large red fish swimming around inside. If you eat us, the three fish said in unison, Put all our bones back into the bucket after you dump out the water. For tonight, though, roast us up and turn the bucket over. Amelia did as instructed, and the large silver bucket grew into a silvery, tower-like tent, comfortably furnished inside. 
Emilia ate the delicious fish and gathered the bones into his hat. In the morning, he struck the tent and turned it over. It shrank to miniature size again, and he put the bones in it and replaced the silver cover. He continued traveling this way, but one day he pitched the silver tent in a little clearing, where Emilia was seen setting up camp by the Tsar during a hunting expedition. He wanted that marvelous silver tent. It packed up so small. He would be able to leave all his accompanying nobles and courtiers behind and hunt in solitude. The handsome stranger with the silver tent was also seen by the Tsarevna, who was accompanying her father on the trip en route to the country estates of a maternal aunt for a winter holiday. She fell head over heels in love. The Tsar would happily have traded his flighty offspring for the magical silver tent, whose contents also seemed to sustain the young man, but appearances must be maintained. The Tsar summoned the fellow to his own tent. What's held in your silver tower or tent when it is made small, he asked, when it takes the size of a thimble? I have watched the whole operation. Fascinating. Red herrings and all their bones, Amelia answered truthfully. I understand you might want to misdirect me because you are attached to your magical things, but I am your little father and I must know. Red herrings, Amelia said again, patiently. The Tsar roared in fury. He had a green wine barrel emptied and tarred outside to make it watertight. Amelia and the weeping Tsarevna were thrust inside. Before the barrel was stoppered and thrown into the stream to make its way out to sea, Amelia whispered, By the will of the pike, do as I like. Create a silver spire and roast three other red herrings on the fire. An exact replica of the pointed silver tent appeared, and the delighted Tsar had the barrel tossed unceremoniously into the cold flowing stream as he feasted on herring and threw the bones away. The tent was like silvery paper up close. A wintry wind took it and it shredded and blew away. The Tsar swore revenge. Meanwhile, the barrel was borne through the stream on the backs of the pike and his family to a safe part of a distant shoreline. The fish weakened the barrel until it flew apart and Amelia and the young Tsarevna took in their surroundings. Use your gifts the pike commanded. Emilia had an island built in the middle of the stream in the forest and on it a fine palace. A glittering crystal bridge connected the palace to the shore. His young bride, though, wanted servants and stores and gardens and markets and fairs and soon the forest was cut down and turned into a bustling trading city on the river and the pike's family was nearly fished to extinction. So much did the princess demand. One day, Emilia spoke to his friend and saw the toll all this prosperity was taking. He scooped the pike and his few remaining family members into two water buckets and shouldered the yoke, taking them as far north as he could to the source of the river in the mountains. I want to build a small, secure life for my family here, Emilia said as he cut a hole in the ice and released the pike in his kin. Let me do that, and I will restore the forest to its former state. 
Will your wife accept that? asked the pike. She's never known anything but court life. I will remind her that her father stopped her up in a barrel for falling in love. By the will of the pike, let her live as I like, happily, wisely, and well, Amelia wished. Back home, the erstwhile princess missed Amelia and was beginning to find all the finery and bustle annoying and exhausting. She remembered first meeting Amelia in the forest with her father's hunting party, and she remembered the stifling darkness and fear of the barrel until the pike and his family had carried them to safety. Suddenly, she was at Amelia's side, just as he was finishing a modest but snug house with the pike's help. She embraced him and rolled up her embroidered sleeves, ready to set her new house to rights. When everything had been done that they would need to live, the pike said, the Tsar is racing to your city on the river. He will take it over, raise taxes, clear the forests, and dam the river. Can you see where he is? Striding across the crystal bridge to confront you at the palace and force you to turn everything over to him. By the will of the pike, do as I like. Let the river claim the crystal span and all return to the way it began. The great city disappeared, and the Tsar narrowly escaped drowning. To add poetic insult to injury, he found several small red herrings flopping around in the folds of his sodden clothes, and Amelia and his bride raised a family and lived their days in the company of the magic pike, happily, wisely, and well. Lucas finished to laughter and cheers from Isabel and Jack. The Decameron shuffled. Seven of spades. Baba Yaga spoke. Jack might say that was a pikely story and get a laugh, but it looks like my luck has returned. Watch yourselves, dear listeners. As Yvonne surely knows, some pike have very long teeth. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.